Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Histories of the Unexpected. He's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. And he is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is Professor James Daybell. And we are your hosts for Histories of the Unexpected. Each week we discuss a surprising object oozing with unexpected historical significance. And this week it's boxes. Which is all about the contents of boxes. It's about what you put in boxes and why. For me, it's all about coffins and mass burial. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis and you can follow me at James Daybell. We're proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and other great shows coming soon. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything we discuss and much, much more at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 9 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the history of things that you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like the history of the wave, the gesture, even the closet. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories are linked in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, that the history of the horn was all about infidelity <laughs> and challenges to male honour? I didn't know that. You didn't know that. We will learn about that in weeks to come. Or that the history of stairs is all to do with the history of private life and social status. Or, quite practically, it's about living on different levels. It is, and the history of height, which is part of it. I love that. Uh, the man sitting opposite me is the yeoman of yesteryear. It's Professor James Daybell. Brilliant. Hello, and the man sitting opposite me is the excavator of epilogues. <laughs> it's Dr Sam Willis. Together, we will be piloting you on this uncharted, frankly highly dangerous and unpredictable flight into the past. Each week, one of us will take the lead and this week it's the turn of Professor James Daybell. James, what have you got for me? Well, this week I have something very special for you indeed. We are going to talk about the history of boxes. Boxes? Boxes. Wow. Okay. So if I say, the, what, what is the history of the box to you? Oh, completely off the top of your head, what, what are you thinking? Um, I'm immediately thinking packaging. 
mm -hmm. um, to start with, uh, which links with industrialization and mass market and things like cardboard, uh, other packaging, bubble wrap. And we did bubbles as well. We didn't did mention, bubbles. We did we didn't mention, mention bubble wrap, but, but um, it's a that's, that's very great. satisfying sound. <laughs> it is. Pop it. Um, I'm thinking luggage, trunks, the difference between carrying ones. We have those wheelie ones now, don't we? But everything, everyone used to have trunks, which were essentially big boxes. Then I'm going to think about security. So it's all very well mm. having a box, but it's better if you can keep your box safe. So locksmiths history of locksmiths ah, history of locks and um coffins coffins boxes for people also significantly is what you put in boxes yeah now i have a very special box okay. for you today and i've been hiding this from you it is on the top shelf up here i will reach up and i shall bring it down and wow. present it to you oh that's very cool what do you think of that <laughs> that is a... It's, you may open it. Thank you. It's a, it's a box that's covered in material. So it's um, beautifully... It's a, it's a box that's designed to be looked at as much as have things stored in, I would say. Um, it's a bit rough and ready. Um, it's been around a while and, oh my God, it is completely full of letters. Um, it's stuffed with letters. Uh, so it's, it's, it's long, it's rectangular... And the box is exactly the right width for a letter. So that is a letterbox. It is a it's a memory box. It's a letterbox. Do you want to know where it came from? Yes. I want to know everything. It was it. found on a skip. No. By a student of mine at Plymouth University. No. He turned up at the beginning of this year and he said, Professor Daybell, um, I've got some letters I'd like to to show you what well, he emailed me and I said well you know somebody who, who's interested in letters I said well, fantastic bring them along and I, I wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting anything and he turned up and he presented me this his father owns a skip company in Surrey mm -hmm. they were doing a house clearance and this was what they found on a skip it was discarded and it came into the property of my student about, have you, have you about, read six, the about six years ago. I've read the dissertation based on... Oh, the photographs in here. The photographs we have here a little... If you see here, we have a little, um, cat a little badge, a cat badge, on the front of a Royal Navy cap. That's a really cool photo. Look at that. That's not even a photograph. It's a, it's a negative. And what we have, these led, we haven't been able to trace the family. We, my, my student tried. But what we have is about three to four hundred letters addressed to Miss Helen Dare, who lived in Surrey, um, in Hazelmere, mm -hmm. um, between the period of the Second World War. And most of the letters that you've got are from a sweetheart, Mr George Tweddle, mm -hmm. um, writing to her home. And I think what we, what we have here is an absolutely fascinating uh, example of a box that is connected to the raw materials of history, that is connected to preservation. This is a personal archive. So what we can look at here is the box as a receptacle for the raw materials of history. Mm -hmm. It's connected to memory, it's connected to memorialization. The only reason that we have these letters is because this woman was based on the home front the letters were coming to her, and most of the letters are addressed to her, not all of them by 
by George Tweddle. But they are, you know, they're, they're preserved because she was in one place and not on the, you know, and, 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 and I think her letters to him on the front would be much more difficult you know, to be to be preserved, although, you know, often the, these are preserved. So it's very much one side of the story. It's very much one side of the story, but also these would have been lost had they not been preserved on, you know, taken from the skip, they would have just been trashed and destroyed that period of history, that particular relationship that they expose would have been gone forever. And so the way that I'm thinking about this is that it links with archives processes of saving, about filtering material. This is a very intentional act of preserving a particular form of history, a particular kind of memory. And it's interesting, I mean, being a historian, when you go into archives, so often you are presented with boxes full of letters, but those boxes have been um, created probably in the 20th century to preserve letters. But here we've got someone doing their own their own archive, aren't they, for the benefit yeah. of their own they're memory? Do, they're doing their own archive. And what's interesting is I have a very good friend who was a former county archivist in, in Devon and talking to him about his job over the last sort of 30 or 40 years, he recalls stories of being called in by law firms to go in and have a look at all their materials, all their documents that have, that have, that have survived. And, you're, you know, he talks about going into a room with masses and masses and masses of material. You're talking about thousands, hundreds of thousands of documents. And he, go, he, he would go through that, sorting through, collecting these things at almost at random. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is, when you have a vast archive like that, like that it can't all be, be kept. So you have to have some kind of policy that makes a decision about what you choose to keep and what you choose not to keep. And this is, ab this is absolutely vital at the heart of history, what, what is preserved, what is not. You know, we often hear about history being written by the victors. What that's often about is it's about the, the kinds of archives, the kinds of archival narratives that can be told and the kind of documents that, that survive. State archives are often very, very powerful archives that, have been, that, are, that are kept precisely to document the history of the state. Yeah, well, the, 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 the wrong assumption to make is that all of the state's letters have been kept yeah, uh, yeah. for posterity because they haven't. No. And everything has gone through an editing process. And interestingly, when I opened this box, I suddenly thought, oh, she's kept all of her letters. Yeah. But I bet she hasn't. No, no. That's, this has that's, been edited. Yes. These are her favourites. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, it, and, what, and what's interesting and what you can't often, what you can't often reconstruct is what's been thrown away. No. And that's often often much more telling. But it's the same as reading the letter themselves. You've got to not just read the words on the page, you've got to read read between the lines as well, don't you? And yeah. it's, it's all yeah. part of being a historian. Yeah. What I love about this is is that um, this is just to explain, the, the 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 box is long and thin and rectangular, and it is exactly the same width as a letter. And what that says to me is that uh, I think someone's making and selling um, letter yep. memory boxes. Yes, yeah. That's um, someone's someone's kind of cashed in with the idea here and made a very very attractive box in which to keep your your most uh, a treasured correspondence. Yeah, and what what's interesting is that these kinds of archives are not in record offices. They're not in stately homes whose families have been around for years and they've got 
you know, specific muniments rooms to collect these materials. These are personal archives, the kinds of collections of letters that probably a lot of our listeners are very familiar with yeah. and have and have at home. Collections of letters from maybe the First World War, maybe the Second World War that are passed on as family heirlooms. And there is a real importance of keeping hold of those because you are capturing the memories of generations. You know, generations that will soon, you know, within the next few decades will be, you know, will, will be lost, will be gone. And there's a real imperative to preserve that kind of heritage. Yeah, I mean, the this box itself is such a clear reminder of it because it's got damp. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a telling side of, it's like a, you know, it's a huge. It's a bit of water spillage, or or it's it's got sucked in damp either outside or or up in an attic somewhere. And it's been in the skip as well, so it's yeah. But the box has protected the letters. It's yeah. on its yeah, top. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's not just about it it looking good and having it up on your mantelpiece above the fire or whatever. Um, it, it's serving a practical purpose. So these letters are actually double protected. They're they're inside the box, but they're also inside the envelope. Yeah. So they're kind of there are two layers of skin. You've got to you know get past. Yeah. Uh, to look at them. Have you ever worked at the um, at the the National Archives in that wonderful collection, the Royal Admiralty Papers? I have. That is the mo- I had a I had the fortune to be to go in and do some consultancy work with them for a workshop they were doing on this. And the papers are incredible. You know, you've got there. Um, you know, basically an unadulterated archive, as you know, mm. much better than I do. These are ships seized post bags that many of these letters, probably a hundred thousand of them, many of them are unopened. Yeah, you know, and you've got you've got that sense of sort of serendipity and and an archive that hasn't been tampered with. I mean, I also I mean, thinking about the archive. I still vividly remember my first day at the National Archives when I was just in my PhD. And I had no idea what to expect. I'd gone up to look at a ship's log from 1780-something. And um, I, I I couldn't describe to you what I was expecting. I had never seen a photograph of one. Um, I had no idea at all. And the boxes, when you get them, are very... They're plain, kind of acid-free yeah. boxes. Um, it's pretty unattractive. Mm. And you're sitting in a room which is pretty unattractive. Mm. Which is disappointing because you imagine an archive to be sort of like a walnut walled library, um, but it's a bit like sitting in an airport. Mm. Um, but I remember how exciting that was when I, I know, opened up the boring box. It's 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 like archivists have specifically designed it to be as exciting as possible for historians because all of the boxes are uniform in colour and shape and size, but they all contain something unique. Yeah, um, which is wonderful. So you can have a big boring brown box but in it can be a diary the size of a wallet yeah you know kind of yeah. rattling around inside it sometimes yeah. big sometimes small sometimes they're just um sheets of papers and, and uh still for me opening those boxes is one of the most exciting things that i do on a day-to-day basis it's like christmas it is, almost it is just like I mean, christmas. The, his- the history of, of the the archival box is fascinating because it you know, as you say, it, they are many of them are, are uniform. They are acid-free, so it's about preservation of historical materials. But have you ever seen? Notice the in the Bodleian Library, down in the bowels of the Bodleian Library, they actually have people whose job, sole job, is basically making tailor-made boxes mm. that fit the rare and early books. 
but they you know they fit them they, perfectly. They fit them absolutely perfectly so that they're so that they're very snug so that nothing will be will be damaged so it's it's absolutely pristine that's part of an ancient tradition box making yeah tell me tell me about Tell me about your boxes. My boxes? Well, I mean, one of the things that really struck me about this was um, coffins, particularly. Have a look at this. This. Boxes for people. Boxes for people, basically. Um, just because I've been reading a bit about the Black Death recently, and I've been uh, doing some work on epidemics. Have a look at that. Describe that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so what we have here is a 3D drawing of a box. Uh, you can actually see through the box and in it is lying down a, are we assuming that it's a figure, I'm assuming that's a woman. Um, there is then what looks like a little shield on the top of this box um, and a rope <laughs> that, is, that is connected to a bell. The bell is labeled D and C. What have, what have you got here? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yes, Sam. That, my friend, is a safety coffin. <laughs> I, I, I must admit, I've never heard of a safety coffin. Isn't this is unexplored history. A brilliant combination of words. <laughs> a safety coffin. Safety coffin. Um, so, uh, in the 18th century, there, there was this kind of rising fear and panic, all linked with epidemics, particularly cholera epidemics, and people terrified of being buried alive. Hmm. Um, and the solution was the safety coffin. So if... And obviously, this, this is all, all linked to the development of medicine. Yeah. And they, they were paranoid that, A, you could come back from the dead, or that their identification of you... If there's nothing, obviously, dramatically wrong with you, like you'd had your throat cut, hmm. there was the fear or, or, the, or the belief that... that, that um, medicine had not advanced to a stage where you could actually certify someone was dead, which meant people invented things like safety coffins. And um, there's even the first ever recorded 
use of a safety coffin. It was built on the orders of Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick before his death in 1792. So he, um, he had actually had a window installed in his coffin to let in a bit of light. Um, an air tube to provide a supply of fresh air, and instead of having the lid nailed down, he had a lock fitted, which uh, actually brings us to the very important question of the history of locks I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, anyway, in a special pocket of his death shroud, his funeral shroud, he was wrapped in, he had two keys, one for the coffin lid and a second for the tomb door, so he could, like an escapologist... He could get out of his coffin, and then he could walk out of his tomb. He could be risen again. So the lock is on the inside? Yes. Allowing him access to it. <laughs> would, would, this is a very silly question, but wouldn't it be dark? Not because he had a window. He had a window? To allow a bit of light. But no, maybe not in the tomb. Maybe the window's in the tomb. Right, OK. Or maybe there were people lighting candles. Yeah. So these, would, they, these wouldn't be coffin... This would be before the coffin was buried underground. Yeah. Right. Anyway, what interested me about this is um, this, uh, this, sort of, this was born from the fear of cholera epidemics. And when I think about epidemics, and particularly the Black Plague, uh, the Black Death, the plague, so 1660s, 100,000 people died, you know, a large percentage of, of um, certainly the population in London, uh, the visions of um, carts rolling around the streets of London with piles of dead bodies. I, I have no idea where I got this from, but they are, um, it's kind of an unstructured approach to dealing with the dead, mm. which, which, if you think about it, is unexpected in the mid-1600s. Mm. Mm. Um, and added to that, there are a couple of descriptions of London um, during, uh, during the Black Death. One, one's very interesting. Um, to my great trouble, I met a dead corpse of the plague in the narrow alley, just bringing down a little pair of stairs. I shall beware of being late abroad again. That's Samuel Pepys yeah. walking around London. Yeah. And Daniel Defoe as well. He was, he was a child in London at the time. He describes a man hysterical with grief following the death cart, carrying his wife and several of his children. He goes, the cart had in it 16 or 17 bodies. Some were wrapped up in linen sheets, some in rags, some little other than naked or so loose that what covering they had fell from them in the shooting out of the cart and they fell quite naked among the rest. So this very much kind of confirmed my perception of how London and Londoners cope with the Black Death. And... Um, I, I was, uh, no, I, I was then surprised, I think I, I was really surprised when I read in the news recently that with the excavations under London for Crossrail, mm. where there's a massive archaeological project, they found near Liverpool Street a plague, de Black Death Cemetery, mm. but they'd all been buried in pine coffins. Ah. And they'd all been carefully aligned east to west. Goodness me. So... The, the kind of the image I had of, of, people, of, of, of people being thrown into, into plague yeah. pits, they're called, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you get this sense of kind of, of mass burial, mass death. It, it seems to have been much, much more structured. And yeah. the box, as a way of respecting the dead, tidying up, keeping things neat. Also preventing contamination. Ah, uh, yes. Um, so it was there. So, so that's the... Um, that was my take on the box. Or certainly yeah, well, the box, I mean, the box as coffin as a sort of receptacle connected to memorialisation of the dead, connected to the funeral is, you know, is, is, is really, is, is absolutely important. I want to go somewhere else with, uh, with, with the locks. Okay. You know, and, and boxes and locks, you know, and having, um, 
if you think about you know the the role of the of the trunk the trunk that would the the lockable trunk that could be used to you know to store papers in we're back to we're back to archive you know if we're thinking about the if we're thinking about the household we're thinking about the study somewhere safe to lock away your papers was incredibly important and i've got another little box here what we have is a wonderful embroidered cabinet yeah here. Um, from the Whitworth Art Gallery at the University of Manchester. So that's heavily embroidered. It's it's a funny shape, isn't it? It's a kind of a rectangular box with a bit of a roof, is how I would describe it, and very ornately decorated with a couple of cabinet doors on the front, and it's on little legs. Yep. That's, that's another box that's designed to be looked at rather than just to be functional. Yep. And it's also, it, it, it's highly decorative, highly elaborate, but it is also connected to personal papers. And found in this was the following letter. A letter from a teenage girl to herself. What period? As a sort of, as a, as a memorial. We're looking here at a sort of 17th century uh, letters, 16, 1647 here. And I'll read it to you. The year of our Lord being 16, 1657, sorry. If ever I have any thoughts about the time uh, when I went to Oxford uh, as it may be I may when I have forgotten the time to satisfy myself I may look in this paper and find it so it's basically a very early autobiographical uh, document written by her as a teenage girl I went to Oxford in the year of 1654 um, and my being there was two years for I um, I was in there in 1654 um, as I stayed there in 1655 and I came away in 1656 and I was almost 12 years of age uh, and she goes on about how you know how she sort of had this cabinet made and the cabinet sort of keeps preserves a sort of sense of, of, of herself I mean this is this is quite unique in the way in which somebody would have kept this yeah and it's it's not just about putting random stuff in there she's putting the most precious things of herself yeah. into that box it's a, it's a box that, that very much represents her her beliefs her loves her you know hopes and fears I suppose Hmm. It's a lockable sort of memory memory chest, and the, the lock again is interesting here. So, so on the one hand, you have you have boxes, but then you have locks. And I know that the Romans would not just have a box in which they would lock their most valuable goods, but they'd have a key yeah. which they would lock it up, and then they would wear the key often on a ring, right? And it's key ring. Yeah. Um, so you can be sitting around a table and someone can look at you and they can know that you're wealthy enough to have a box that's locked that's got something valuable in it. Yeah. So then the key and the lock themselves become indicators of status because you can't carry a massive trunk around. But the lock, the, the key is portable. Which links us to the very interesting history of the lock and the key, ah. which we should do as a future podcast. But it's also about it's about security, it's about property ownership. Yeah, you know. All oh, well, the biggest box things. we own is our house. Yes. So yes. Assuming we did windows, didn't we? we did looking through windows. We, we did. didn't. We didn't do it as in stopping people coming in and out. But the, the biggest box I own is my house. It's got all of my stuff in it, um, and. It's so easy to, to overlook, I think, the, the ritual of locking up. Yeah. And I can leave the house and go about my daily routine in the perfect confidence that 
everything in my world is at home and is safe. And so that, that act of shutting the door and of locking it, um, I think is a really important, yeah. important part, that, part that, to me. That's the West Country for you. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine if you lived elsewhere, yeah. you, know, you wouldn't be quite well, so... So if, if you lived in LA, you would have a sort of team of, of, sort of security guards and dogs and, and, and yeah. a SWAT team ready to pounce. Well, which actually reminded me, I, I was listening to a, it was a spoof um, meditation podcast and it was, you know, I always thought it was all fine. You know, are you sitting comfortably? Have ten deep breaths. You know, picture yourself by the beach. Now we'll begin. Did you lock the front door before you sat down to do this? <laughs> and then it turned out to be to be like you know a hilarious spoof of the most unrelaxing thoughts that you could possibly have. But um, yeah, the um, the the you know it's the old chestnut. Did you lock up? No, forgot. And within a house, within a large stately home. You know, where you have multiple rooms, multiple keys, multiple locks, who controls those keys, who controls access to different parts of the house, you know, where you've, where you've got bodies of servants, where you've got secretaries and scribes and clerks, you know, that's all about who controls the different sort of power spaces within the household, which is a fascinating history in itself. It is wonderful. And we've been looking at these these highly decorated boxes or one for archive story analysis. And also there are, there are, there are those like um, a sailor's chest. Yes. Which, which didn't just contain his most favourite things, they contained everything. Yes. Everything about his life went into it. And, and what I love about them is that they were multi-purpose. So mm. it's not just a box for keeping stuff in. You sit on it, um, you can use it for eating on, you can stand on it. And for me, they're a tool. Yeah, yeah, multifaceted tool. Yeah, yeah. My father, when he was away, when he was away at school and at university, used to sort of pack up a big trunk. The trunk would then be put on a train, would be delivered to the school or to to his college, and then he would go. He would actually hitchhike, you know, at one point when he when he was at university. But the trunk was the kind of you know was something that was lockable that could travel, you know, without him, um, and convey all of his all of his worldly goods securely and safely you know, to the destination that he wanted. We also have um, purpose-made boxes. I've got you a picture here of a, a pedigree box from the late 17th century, which is, in, which is in the Victorian Albert Museum in London. A pedigree is if you were of um, a sort of heraldic family, oh, yes. the pedigree would be the, the sort of highly decorative family tree. Scroll. A sort of scroll. There's a wonderful example of this at Powderham Castle that traces the Courtney family. I, I was there uh, a couple of weeks ago and we rolled it out on the table. These are the, these, these are the Earls of Devon and it, it must have been ooh, maybe six metres long um, by about you know a metre wide. Um, they have it. They have it rolled up in a, in a, a sort of Hessian sack or some sort of silk sack that the archivist made for them. But but this example that we have here is a pedigree box that is intended to preserve one of the sort of you know the the quintessential um, authenticating heraldic documents that you would have that established your family title and your lineage. So that you know your your fa your family history, your family tree. Mm. And again, we're connected back to archives and preservation and what people consider to be the most important things that they absolutely want to preserve. Of course, it's also on vellum, vellum rather than paper. And that's significant. The, the history of paper, we should definitely do a podcast on that. But vellum is, is the kind of 
It's the kind of material surface that you find legal documents um, written on because you want them to survive. Yeah. Because paper, you know, as we all know, you know, paper doesn't survive quite so well. So, I mean, th- those archives, and the archive box of letters we were talking about, and, and this one, this is about, it's like a stationary thing, though. It's, 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 um, it's something that's put somewhere and it stays there. Yes. Right, but uh, boxes, a lot of the time, are created to allow things to travel. Yes. Aren't they? They, they yes. provide protection. Yes. And it's, it's intimately linked with um, the post, with, with transport. Yeah. Um, with all sorts of things, isn't it? So uh, there's packaging on the one hand, catalogs and his cardboard boxes, but um, you know, more specifically, it, it is it's it's about objects, whatever they are, moving around the world. Yeah. So it's about transport. It's about trade. It's about transmission. Yeah. And um, you know, protection and and care for your precious objects that you can then send away from you. Absolutely. But you, you sort of entrust, entrust the box, uh, you know, with your goods. And do you trust your memories to a box? I, I trust my memories to a box. I have two, since my daughters were born, I have two boxes on my, one of the top shelves in my, in my study that I, 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 I treasure those memories and I archive those memories of my children as they're growing up. And I, and I have the intention of passing them on. Yes, I, mean, I, I, um, I have a theoretical box. Right. I have more, more, more like piles. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we need to go out after this and we need to buy you some, some, some archival boxes. Oh, no, actually, no, I do. I've got a wonderful box. It's, it's an old writing box. Okay, so it's, um, it's a big rectangular thing. Uh, it's a writing desk which folds into a rectangular box. So you, you fold half it down. It's like a huge wedge mm. um, of uh, leather bound. So you, you lean on it. And then you've got a little inkwell at the top. But then you can lift it up and you can keep all your papers and secret things in it. So you then hide that and then you, you fold it over. It's brilliant. Um, so I've got a few of my special things in there. But um, a lot of my stuff just lives in plastic boxes in the attic. <laughs> so I need to get some proper boxes, basically. Acid-free boxes. Acid-free boxes. Well, everyone, thank you very much. We've been all over the place. Where have we been with this one? We started with a memory box, an archive box. We've been to... Coffins. Safety coffins. Safety coffins. Everyone get a safety coffin. Cardboard boxes, memory boxes, Sam's special box that he keeps in his <laughs> in in his study, and plastic boxes. Plastic boxes, there we go. Everyone, thank you very much for listening. As always, you are the most important member of this podcast, so please get in touch. Tell us about your boxes, send us photographs of your boxes, and... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. He suggests some ideas for future podcasts. But that's all for now. Thank you very much for listening.